Welcome. This is Between the Gutters. This is Albert Lamb. And I'm Drew Tan. This is a podcast where we talk about the stories within the panel. So today, <clears throat> we have uh, two of our contributors here with us. Not one, but two. That's right. This is. I a- know it's been a while since we recorded our last episode. Y'all thought we were dead, but we're still kicking, man. We ain't dead. Just throw away out of my grave. Well, we're we're dead. Dead. Can't, can't we can't stop. We're back. We're back. We're back. <laughs> Somebody wrote us back into continuity. Uh, exactly. We, we were Reality <laughs> was altered and now we exist again. Yep. That time stone ain't got nothing on us. Nope. Now you guys gotta deal with us again. <laughs> yep. So if you can't recognize the voices, we got Alexander Shannon. Say hi. Hello. And, and we got Julian Zachary Hanna <laughs> in the house. Julian Zachary Hanna. Yeah, no yeah. less than my full name for um yeah. for all of you people. The serial killer name. Yep. I didn't yeah. even know you were first time with Julian. Yeah, well, now you know. Now everyone knows. Thanks for that, Drew. <laughs> Anytime, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> so today's topic, we today we're going to uh, take a detour from our normal ser- uh, series topic of the uh, top 25 Marvel comics of all time. We're going to take a small detour. We are The topic for this podcast will be comics that we would recommend to people who are, get first, who are first time getting into comics or... For just people who just want to have something good to read. Yeah. When, yeah. We, we, when we talked about doing a series like this, uh, you know, obviously we had to bring in our dudes, Shanice and Zach here. We, we had a bunch of different uh, recommendations because we've all read yeah. so many comics. So I think the way that we decided to, to break it down to make this more digestible is we're, e- we're each going to recommend uh, one comic from a specific genre. So to, today... Uh, the specific genre that we'll cover will be superhero comics because I don't really know why it was just the first one on on our spreadsheet, our list that we're keeping track of all the stuff. Yeah. But um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of different genres of comics yeah. and and we want to get to talking about you know different types of comics besides superhero comics. You know we got crime comics, war stories, romance, yeah. science fiction, fantasy, you know, all these different genres of comics. But today we'll we'll just start off with superheroes. Yeah, and I also think it's a fitting way to start out, if only because uh, superhero comics has the most association with mm-hmm. comic books yeah. as a whole. So as we delve deeper, it'll be good to kind of flesh out the various genres that are in existence and to explore what comics we would recommend to first-time readers or to people who just want to read a good comic. Definitely. Yeah. Plus, so, the other thing, I think that with comics, comics do superhero fiction better than any other medium, in my opinion. I mean, obviously there's a lot of movies that make way more money than, than comics, but for me, <coughs> superheroes, they're always going to be done best in comics. Agreed, agreed. I think there's also um, a thing that's that's easy to do because we're so used to seeing, you know, you think about comics, the average American does, and you think about superheroes, and we kind of associate the two. Um, it is easy to kind of get into this thing where you kind of just write it off, but there are some really, really good superhero stories that tell uh, kind of very existential and very transcendent, very uh, human, very human stories. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll cover some of those today. So uh, before we continue, we wanted to give you just kind of a brief description of what superhero comics are, just so we all kind of have a baseline understanding uh, before entering into the discussion. Uh, super, superhero fiction is a genre of speculative fiction examining the adventures, personalities, and ethics 
of costume crime fighters or superheroes. Um, we would define superheroes as a type of heroic stock character, usually possessing supernatural or superhuman powers, who is uh, dedicated to fighting evil of the universe or and protecting the public, or and usually battling supervillains. So, uh, just so you guys know, that was a Wikipedia definition, but we felt that it suited our needs just fine. <laughs> <laughs> we're too lazy to come up with our own definition. <laughs> Well, well, we read it uh, as a means of like <laughs> looking for kind of an in into describing into coming up with our own description. But upon reading it, I just realized, you know what? That pretty much says everything it's, I would have said anyways. It's pretty yeah. comprehensive. Yeah. Also, why are we with that wheel? Huh? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty yes. comprehensive. Yes. So, so first up today is Alexander Shanus. We want him to tell us if you were to meet someone who's who didn't know anything about comics. Who was getting into it for the first time? What would you recommend to someone? Uh, I'd first recommend to save their money. But after that, I'd say if they have a chance. <laughs> you uh, want the Save the Money podcast? That's not yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> I would tell them that uh, I think Ultimate Spider Man, I would say, is a good way to get into a modern realm of comic books, but also harkens back to the day of what the original comic books were in the, I guess, the Silver Age, I think it was. Alright. Can you tell us um, who the creative team is and a little bit more about, like... Definitely. I think for the first 105 or 110 issues, the creative team was... Uh, the writer was Brian Michael Bendis and the artist was... The illustrator was Mark Bagley. He also did the covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they pushed out a lot of issues per year. During yeah, the time yeah they did. It was like 14 to 15 sometimes. Um, so, hey, sorry, brief side note for uh, those of you who don't know, that is prolific, that is an astronomical amount of work that you're doing. Mm. Um, you know, you may love or hate Mark Bagley or whatever, say what you want about him, but then <coughs> definitely gets work done. Um, as an artist, I can tell you, you're, you're struggling through, I'd say, a page and a half tops maybe per day. Mm. That's like, that's like almost two, maybe three pages a day. That's that's ridiculously fast. Mike Bagley's a workhorse. And his, and his work was consistent. Like, if you, if you felt like his style, at least his style was was consistent and he yeah. produced... Yeah, it never looked like one month's work was less lesser than the previous month. Mm-hmm. And remember, for, for most artists, they average maybe 10 or 11 issues per year. It takes about four or five weeks to put an issue together, mm-hmm. typically... And there was a time early on in the release date, release schedule of Ultimate Spider-Man when they were putting out 15, maybe even 18 issues per year. And Mark Bagley and did And Mark it. Bagley drew them all. Yeah. yeah. So for those of you who are uh, followers of our podcast, well, I, I feel like we need to make a note that... So this is a comic that has made it onto uh, our top 25 Marvel comics of all time. Mm-hmm. So this is... Uh, so this we, is more affirmation of just yeah. how how good this comic is. I think we talked about this back in our second episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Shanus, tell us, why exactly would you recommend this to a new reader? for the like, or, or, yeah, for someone who's never read comics before. Or to anyone. Or to anyone. So, I got introduced to Ultimate Spider-Man over ten years ago. But um, some years after... Edition came out because I think it started off in 2001 or 2000. I forget exactly when it started. 
But once I started reading it, I got hooked into it right away, mostly because the full the storyline was was very easy to go with. Uh, and the writing style that Brian McCombs used, which was, I guess, a bit novel at the time, was that he wrote his characters as if they were real people with not everything being eloquently set up for speech. Like, they'd stutter, they'd mumble. There was a lot of repetition. A lot of repetition. And he was able to capture, in a way, like, the teenage angst of the modern world. Mm. Like, and you had a bit of that uh, melodrama, you know, from the Peter Parker, from the older Spider-Man issues. Like, what was me? I'm a teenager in this world. But in this case, it felt more real. You could connect to it a lot more because they felt like the real people, to me at least. Like, and I appreciated the challenges that Peter Parker had as a high school student, as well as somebody who was imbued with powers that he had to like figure out how to be responsible for. Um, and I felt the handling of the evolution of his interaction with the villains around him and just the people in his life created, I guess, a mirror reflection of who Spider-Man really is. And right now, I should mention, I have um, Volume 13 of Ultimate Spider-Man called Hobgoblin. Mm-hmm. And it's been a while since I read it, and so I'm like over halfway through it now. And the build-up to revealing uh, Harry Osborn as the Hobgoblin, which he was in the original, you know, the, what they call the 66 universe. Yeah. And the few pages already here, it's Peter Parker's going through this mental trial of like, like, it's not like a superficial of like, here's a villain to fight him. He's really risen. Something's happened to one of his best friends he hasn't seen for a while for, uh, for reasons I won't get into. And he doesn't want to fight him because he recognizes that Harry Osborn was a victim of his own father's manipulations. Yeah. Uh, and so this Peter Parker, was, yeah, he's Spider-Man, he's a hero, but he's still a kid, he's still a teenager. He's now stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with fighting your friend who has no control over what happened to him, didn't have any choice in that matter, and knowing that if you don't do anything, he's going to ramp into the city. But if you do anything, you might hurt him. Mm, yeah. Um, and that really resonates because there's a lot of thought you can tell that Brian Michael does put into in capturing who Spider-Man really is, which you don't always generally get. He's not just a wisecracking, you know, uh, I'm blanking on the word, spandex-wearing, you know, guy. Just kind of a punk kid. Yeah. Yeah. He's got real, you know, feelings about what's going around him. He's yeah. really trying to process his situation about how he has to be responsible. It's like, and you get the sense that he's overwhelmed with this. He doesn't know yeah. actually how to handle it, even though, and every time he does handle it, it's never really handled the way it should be. Yeah. And, and that's the inherent, like, like um, that's sort of the draw of what, it's the draw, yeah. It's the draw of kind of what Peter Parker is. And I think, when you look at Spider-Man initially, even when he came out for the first time in back way back when Amazing Fantasy came out, the the one thing that I always hear in like documentaries and stuff is that this was the first time that you didn't have a superhero who was like kind of an iconic Superman. You know, up to this point you had guys that were so heroic and so noble and so good that nothing really phased them. Yeah, because up to that point yeah. the history of superhero comics <laughs> was all about grown men being superheroes. Yeah. These were guys that you looked up to and that you would believe could handle whatever was thrown in their way. And the only time you had teenagers 
as superheroes was when they were sidekicks. Yeah. yeah yes. But here you had, back in 1961 or 62, when Spider-Man was first introduced, Peter Parker is a high school student, a teenager, yeah. but he calls himself Spider-Man. Yeah. He ain't Spider-Boy, he's Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look at all his problems. Like This was the first superhero who had to worry about grades, he had to worry about who he was going to take to the prom, uh, he had to worry about, you know, his Aunt May, things mm -hmm. like that. You know, he had problems. And yeah. that was, I think that was a huge part of the appeal of the character. And quite frankly, it was kind of one of the largest elements that Superman introduced into comics, um, like, moving forward. Like Superman? Spider-Man. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, because I feel like after this, there was there was a lot of focus on humanizing the superheroes to the degree that, oh, yeah, we want them to be just like us, we want them to have problems and whatever, and so that's the thing that's interesting about uh, Brian Michael Bendis' um, take on Spider-Man. It really does feel like Spider-Man is kind of a ready-made character for a revamping every co couple of years, mm -hmm. and like my personal feeling on this, and feel free to like correct me if you disagree, but... Um, <laughs> Spider-Man is about, at, at its core, it's about Peter Parker being a, a teenager. He's almost eternally kind of a teenager trying to be a man or trying to be a superhero, right? <clears throat> so it, it's the sort of story that's ripe for reimagining every for every generation because what it means to be young kind of, like, kind of on the surface level, it's the same, but those things change with every generation, I think that's fair to say. Whereas you take someone like Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark, like, yeah, maybe we have to change him from being a multi-millionaire to a multi-billionaire. And maybe, mm -hmm. you know, he's got a better handle of social media. But, you know, at the end of the day, a rich businessman is a rich businessman. And, like, uh, I don't think those are necessarily things that require that much updating, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas Peter Parker mm -hmm. is sort of something that can appeal to every kid in every generation. There's something visceral yeah. about the Peter Parker character, the concept of Spider-Man, because the universal theme of the core of his character is power and responsibility. Mm. And that's something that resonates with any era, with any generation. Exactly. However old you are, you could be a kid reading it, you could be an adult, yeah. and it'll still have an impact on you, maybe in a different way than it would when you were young or yeah. older, but... It's it's just one of those themes that instinctively, as yeah. as you read these stories, you just kind of grasp them emotionally on exactly. a very on that yeah, like I said, visceral level. Yeah, like look at like what is the most well known line that Spider Man is known for? With great power comes great responsibility. You know, like I don't, I wouldn't say that uh, any other character really has. A line that associates so clo quite so closely with them. Hulk smash. Clobbering oh, okay. time. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you can build your entire life's philosophy around <laughs> clobbering time, good luck. You could. I just got married. Clobbering time. <laughs> I'm the best there is at what I do. Yeah. <laughs> but what I do isn't very nice. <laughs> hey guys, I got a date tonight. Hulk smash. <laughs> <laughs> well played, Sarah. Well played. Well played. Um, yeah, there is there is uh, kind of that another universal theme that carries over of just 
you know, the whole coming of age slash uh, David and Goliath kind of, kind of a story. It is like this kid up against stuff that is usually a lot bigger and badder than he is. Um, he's almost always the underdog. And I remember um, being young and when I first started reading Spider-Man, probably he quickly became my favorite hero, hero mm. partially because of those reasons. Um, you know, the whole teenage angst and being yeah. ostracized and, you know, feeling like you're kind of alone and kind of in a weird place and nobody really gets you. And yeah. Kind of, yeah, so there's a lot of um, things that Spider-Man is that carry over, um, even if it's wrapped in a slightly different package, you know. Um, part of the appeal of the character, though, is that it, it does carry over and it does have kind of a, a timeless aspect to it. Yeah. The, the other thing I was going to mention that that's so great about Brian Michael Bendis' run is it it's not... He's not entirely re reinventing the wheel. A lot of these are stories that already kind of existed in in Spider-Man's like vast history, right? Mm -hmm. So what his job was was to repackage it for a, you know for today's modern like reader, and so he took essentially the best elements that existed out of all of the stories and either found a way to make more sense of it in certain cases, something like, you know, the idea of what Venom is, and to make it something more palatable without all the baggage of continuity. Mm. Or And he found a way to streamline it into just this one epic, massive story retelling of Peter Parker's entire history, you know? So, uh, yeah, he... Brian Michael Bendis definitely wrote, what, 100-plus issues of Spider-Man? Uh, probably closer to 200, I think. Yeah, so, okay, so, yeah, to, to most people that sounds like a lot, but keep in mind, Spider-Man up to this point, like, the 616 universe, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, the adult, he's got, like, hundreds, hundreds more comics than that, and Brian Michael Bendis did the job of telling that story of that history in 200 issues. It was a singular vision. Yeah, absolutely. Impressive. Yeah. yeah, I forget what issue they did on before they went to the Miles Morales uh, stuff. Um, it gets confusing with all the renumbering. I would have to look at, at a list. But I know that uh, at some point reached like the 160s or 100, like around 170, and then they did the whole Death of Spider-Man story. Right. And so right around there was when Peter Parker's story ended. Um, Shanice, what what are some of the things, some of the highlights of Ultimate Spider-Man that made you decide to choose that? Out of all the superhero comics that you've read, what made you decide to choose Ultimate Spider-Man as the one comic that you would want to recommend in the superhero genre? It's actually probably the one comic book that brought me back into a comic book around that time. Because mm -hmm. uh, I was, and this is, I think we had this podcast before, like, mm -hmm. the theme was, like, when you first read comic books and what made you get back into it yeah. later on. Um, and so I started getting back into it, I think it was in 2004, no, 2003, 2004, um, that's when... It might have been 2002, even. You're right, it was 2002, because that's when Spider-Man 2's movie I don't remember when the movie came out. But anyway, it was the early yeah, 2000s. Yeah, it was And so, I found, as I mentioned, also Spider-Man was very readable, it was very accessible, the pacing was a story that you could go through a single issue in short order, but still feel absorbed in it. 
and I just really like the way uh, Bendis handled the characterizations. Like, despite we could, Bigger's art is fairly uniform, but he was able to bring out the expression that Bendis wanted through his dialogue. And each character had their distinct voice, and it's also fun to see these characters who I was to an extent familiar with in the Six Universe in the new light, like the way Flash Thompson, who he was in this world, who Harry Osborn was in this world, mm -hmm. and it was just kind of interesting to see like adult themes being explored with the perspective of a high school mind. And at that point, I hadn't been out of high school that long that I couldn't, like, you know commiserate with that, with those uh, ideas. Like, I guess it, you could almost say it was ultimately like, the ultimate fan fiction work of the sorts of, like, if I were fantasizing about being a superhero, what would I want to be or read? And I think Bendis captured that in a lot of ways. Of like, You wouldn't just be the ultimate powered person who could do anything. It's the fact that you had limitations, the fact that you had to like deal with your life in conjunction with these newfound abilities, is resonating because it made Peter Parker more human than the than the human people. Mm -hmm. Like he had to really like understand who he was, and so I had fun with that because you know in college it's just high school for the parents, so a lot of cases you see the people around you, and you see like them just going through their own like little pointless dramas, and it kind of put a reflection of like okay, what's actually important here. Um, and he really does explore the idea of friendship and family in, in very unique ways. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, I appreciated that. I, I just thought it was, it was that, but at the, at the same level, it was just simply just a lot of fun. Cool. And I think that's what makes a good story. Is like, if you can go back to it and read it and be hooked into it, which as you can all tell, I've just been reading it again and ignoring <laughs> most things going on. Every time that one of us has been speaking, Shannon has just been reading <laughs> the comic, the Ultimate Spider-Man comic in front of him. Because it's just... <laughs> Paul, I will catch you, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> will be there. That, that wasn't even a joke, folks. Like, he really has been absorbed in this comic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how many pages this is, but I, I read this shot this whole evening, and... You know, it's funny because I don't always have a chance to reread works because um, there's so much more that I haven't read that I want to get to. But mm -hmm. opening this book again, I was like, I remember reading this, but I was like, no, this is still like, this is still fun to me. It was also just walking down memory lane and like revisiting things that I had kind of forgotten. And this still holds up to the test of time. I very much enjoyed what I read here. Like I said, I have the volume 13 Hobgoblin storyline in front of me. And. I gotta appreciate what Bendis did in terms of handling the revelation of Harry Osborn as the ultimate Hobgoblin. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read the Hobgoblin story arc from the Sixteen Six Universe. Mm -hmm. So I can't offer comparisons, but... I would probably say it's a better version than the, than the original 616 version of the yeah, Hobgoblin story. Yeah, this is a good Hobgoblin yeah. story. So, uh, the old 616 Hobgoblin stuff is convoluted. pretty convoluted. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is not a convoluted, but it also makes a whole lot of sense. Like, I don't know what Venice's plan was. Like, I don't know if he sat down and said, I have a six-year plan for Ultimate Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. But it, it almost feels like he had this in mind at some point before he even started writing this. Mm -hmm. This is where he wanted the Harry Osborn's journey to go and then re-intersect with Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. And it felt... Like a very natural transition. It didn't feel like a force, like we have to have a hobgoblin in the open storyline. Let's just force him in there. It's like, no, this made a lot of sense. 
The way it was handled was very respectful to both Peter Parker and Harry Osborn. And the challenges that actually uh, Harry Osborn would have as being a rich son of a, of a genius, overprotective father who just messed up his entire life. And, of course, being in this open universe, you see Nick Fury playing a part in this, and also, like, how he handles Nick Fury's interaction with Harry Osborn. Like, Nick Fury isn't just some, like, um, I have high clearance, and I won't tell you anything, like, I'm a jerk, and, like, you're a kid. Like, he actually tries to connect and tries within the limitations of what he can, because it's top-secret stuff, to tell Harry Osborn, like, look, we know it's not your fault. We don't blame you for anything. We're sorry we had to, to pull you away and keep you safe. And you just, you just start, you, you actually see the difficulties that Harry Osborn's going through, the, the, he's trying to understand why he's been here. He kind of understands it, but he doesn't quite get what's actually been going on, and there's a sense that his memory's been kind of tampered with, too. And you feel for him. You really do. And when he finally turns to Hobgoblin, you're not thinking, yeah, I wish I, Spider-Man, go kick his ass now. You're thinking, <laughs> God, I feel so bad for this kid. Like, everything is out of his control, and it's just like, the whole thing goes downhill for Spider-Man and Harry and even Nick Fury. And it's just like the tragedy of what one person with too much power and a lack of moral responsibility can do to people around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, character and moral study in the two sides of the equation that we were just talking about, right? With great power comes great responsibility. But you start pulling that thread and you see who's made of what, right? Because yeah. sometimes... In Spider-Man's case, he responds well and he rises to um, whatever the situation is. But with some people, with other people, you pull that thread and they start to unravel. And you pull it a little more and they start unraveling until they get to the point where, you know, what Shannon is describing with with Harry in the story. If you want to destroy my sweater, pull this thread as I walk away. I mean, you get these these beautiful panels of, like, them fighting and, like, and Hobgoblin doesn't say anything for the longest time. And the first thing, I mean, I'm wrong, but like, I feel the first thing he s- says is, after Peter Parker just starts bashing into him again, he's like, in like almost this, like, in, in the way it's spelled out in, word, in letters, it almost sounds like an infantile child trying to pronounce words that they're not yet able to fully pronounce. Mm-hmm. And they're just saying, please kill me. Do it. Wow. Like, the Harry Osborn that is able to come out through this Hobgoblin manifestation is simply saying, I just want to die. The life I'm living is too painful for me to deal with, and I just want you to kill me. That's powerful stuff, man. And it's it's just like it is really powerful stuff because like you don't actually know what Harry Harry's agenda is because between the the, the coloring and the shading and the backstory that they, that Venice overlays, you think okay, Harry Osborne perhaps knows he's Hobgoblin or he has this perception that Peter Parker is truly this manipulative person who's put his father into the position of what he is in, and it's really all Peter Parker's fault, and he's playing this game manipulating Peter Parker to eventually like, kill him. Yeah. But it turns out that's not the case. It turns out that Harry has just been dealing with the psych- internal psychosis where he's been going crazy and unraveling, and, but he's been aware enough of it, you realize that he's actually been aware of it in some sense, and he just came back because he really just wanted it to all be over. Mm-hmm. Because his father killed his mother, his father is now locked away, having killed who knows how many more people mm-hmm. beyond that point. He's his friends are exterior to him, like 
he doesn't belong anywhere. And, and now he's also inherited an heir to like hundreds of millions of dollars in this huge empire. It's like, and he's like, and Victoria says like, we did you a favor, you're legally considered an orphan. And on the surface, you're the first reading, you're like thinking, okay, this this kind of makes sense. He's like, okay, now you have all these millions of dollars, but it's like, but you, when you start seeing the back, like, it's like Nick Fury as an adult is unaware of the impact that Harry Osborn as a teenager yeah. has had through all this. Like, that's an interesting disconnect, and, and, and Bendis captures this adult who's trying to be, um, he's not trying to be an asshole, he's not at all. He's yeah. trying to be a responsible he's adult. <laughs> but he's so disconnected from what these teenagers are going through. Yeah. Um, and at this point, he is not aware that Harry Osborn has powers. Harry Osborn doesn't even necessarily know he has powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just this huge disconnect. Like, we, we, we did you this legal status of now you're an orphan, you have all this money. You know, we, we set you up so you're good for life. And it's just like, it's like, like he's an orphan. You have the money in the world, how's he good for life? Yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't, and, and as a reader, you don't, you think, yeah, I mean, if I had a hundred million dollars, I guess I'd, I'd be okay. But then you but until, you know, he turns to a hobgoblin and you're like, like, you think back to that phrase, like, it was almost like foreshadowing of like, no, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not. This is not <laughs> yeah, any place that you want to be. It's not good for life. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, if you're a teenager, you don't necessarily need a hundred million dollars. <laughs> you need someone to help you yeah. to yeah. learn how to live life. You're, you're not really an adult and you don't, you don't know how to think things through like that. Actually, point. that's like perfect fuel for a fire is like find out that your dad or like the person that you've entrusted with your... Yeah. Um, protection and with teaching you to become an adult this whole time uh find out that he's absolute scum and we're gonna take him away but here's a hundred million dollars for you to do with what you will so that should make up for it right guys (laughs) (laughs) i hope you can buy your way into mental stability (laughs) because that's how it works i think uh that whole story um really is a good example of how ultimate spider-man how Bendis in Ultimate Spider-Man is able to write these fully uh, multi-dimensional characters where I think a lot of times it would be easy to write characters as just acting stupid or acting dumb for the sake of the plot. Mm. But I think, you know, when when you described it, Shanice, you were explaining, you know, these multifaceted uh, reactions. You know, you've got Nick Fury, who's he's not trying to be a bad guy. He thinks he's doing... A favor to some kid that just needs to live his life, but yeah. he doesn't understand the repercussions. And then because of that, there's consequences. And then you got Peter Parker and Harry Osborn dealing with the things that they have to deal with in the story. I just think that Bendis does a really good job of understanding the characters and developing them, having them grow, react to the world appropriately. He puts his characters through the ringer, uh, but he does it in a way where there's a lot of depth to it. You know, he's not just having people fight just so he can have his artist draw a bunch of fisticuffs. Mm. It's, there's a, there's, there's drama behind yeah. every punch, you know? There's and a reason. I think that's what makes yeah. his ultimate Spider-Man so good is because there is that inherent drama and, and that's a big part of the entertaining fa- entertainment factor yeah. of the comic. And the beautiful thing that Bendis has is that, and if you read various work, if you read various works, he has different restraint levels. He was really he had a lot of restraint in this particular storyline because even though it's called the Hobgoblin, 
Hobgoblin only really shows up for one issue in the form of Hobgoblin. He shows up in the end of the the issue, the issue before like the main storyline, but in in but if you look at it, he's really in only one issue of this whole arc, mm-hmm. and it's not even the last issue. There's the repercussions issue of how is Peter Parker going to deal with this now after the fact that he's beat up his friend, yeah, and and realized that Nick Fury, despite his good intentions, really just kind of lies to him and people around him, and again, not not for an intent to be malicious, but because. You know, Nick Fury, he's a military leader. He's got to protect the secrets. He's got to protect the He's got a lot on his mind. He's got a lot on his mind. Um, but it just was such a... It's like, it, it, makes, it, made, me, it made me think of the, the Daredevil issue by um, Frank Miller, where when he's fighting the bullseye, they're not saying a word. It was just mm-hmm. this intense fight sequence. And that's really what this also kind of felt like. It was, it was, a, it was a fight of, I wouldn't say willpower, but a, a fight of the soul of, like, you know, Venice is just getting to the hardest hurts. Like they're not really phys- like they're physically fighting, but I feel like he was trying to manifest this idea of like his eternal struggle too. There's yeah. a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Fight. the fight is a metaphor. Yeah. I think the other thing is uh, having a, a big chunk of the storyline devoted to the repercussions of the violence. You know, that stuff like that. He did that throughout his entire run on Ultimate Spider-Man. I think that's something that adds a lot because so many other superhero comics, the story ends after they beat up the bad guy, and then the next story just starts and they fight. The next bad guy. guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned this. In this, actually, in this arc, once he forms the Hobgoblin, Peter's thinking, he's literally thinking, what do I do? I can't let him get outside because he's going to hurt other people. Mm-hmm. Like, in almost every other superhero story, once the fighting happens, you're like, okay, yeah, we love fights, and nobody thinks about the destruction that's happening around. Like <laughs> you, you said, we think of Man of Steel, the and, movie. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go to the next issue, like, it's Pick all... Up, guys, and you wiped out a city. And you're like, you're like okay, they fought, what, but there's no story about the people who suffered to the destruction. Yeah. And here Peter Parker is saying, I can't let him get out. I need to somehow resolve this right now. Of course, he fails at that. Like, that's what makes the fight so dramatic in itself, is that Peter Parker is struggling about, like, he's trying to protect his friend, he's trying to protect himself, he's trying to protect the people around him, these strangers who live in Manhattan, who he doesn't mm-hmm. know, but that's the response he's taking on. But I think it's great that Bendis brings it to the overall attention of, like, this is what Peter Parker, who is Spider-Man, is actually thinking. Yeah. He's not thinking... Well, let's have a punch-out fight, and I'm Spider-Man. Yeah. He's thinking, I'm Spider-Man, and I have a responsibility to those who I have chosen to protect, because I'm going out there in my spandex. <laughs> Nobody asked me to do this. Yeah. So I'm putting myself, I'm imposing myself on them, saying, I'll protect you. Nobody asked for it. And if your protection causes people to get hurt, then what thing are you doing to them? Well, the other thing, too, that really like catches well, catches me about that is... Um, it's it's not just something to be glossed over, right? Like he he, in a sense, it's like treating it with respect. Like violence or a fight or whatever, like this thing happened, but he doesn't just sort of gloss over it, like Drew was saying, and go on to the next thing. He camps out on it and he he, he treats it with the I guess necessary gravity mm-hmm. that that you would need for a story like that. Like. Maybe some people in real life are going to go, hey, it's superhero, like, knock him out and, you know, <laughs> flatten a few buildings. And I would hope the majority of us, though, would be like, hey, that's a really bad idea. Actions Someone's have consequences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always yeah. a funny question of, like, when you're having a super villain fight, why don't you just punch him out into the middle of the ocean and have a fight out there where nobody's going to hurt? Yeah. Like, why don't you do the fight away from everything? <laughs> um, Imagine if every comic we read, they just, like, had a plane, picked them up, <laughs> dropped them off in the middle of an ocean. 
so that every comic gets you read, like all the battle always fought in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> like the no island, just in the water. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like swimming and just kind of swinging at each other. Then Aquaman would probably swing at me, bro. Have some purpose to exist. <laughs> Namor would be dominating. Yeah. Dark side's here. Alright, guys, let's drop him off in the middle of water. <laughs> There's nobody out there. Eventually, things that Venice takes a moment to actually yeah. spend some time exploring a contrast between like what makes Peter Parker Peter Parker, not with Spider-Man, is that in this arc, Peter Parker goes at him because I think it's the previous arc, Gwen Stacy had been killed by something he also had kind of lost control of protecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and so he's he's mad for a lot of reasons, and it's like and you know it's not the things he's saying, it's like and this is like the real part. Venice really captures like the teenage angst of like the self-loathing, but also like how we always blame the things around us. Yeah. Peter Parker does that, but also internalizes it and blames himself. And he gets unhinged, and he's protecting this vendor of a hot dog yeah. um, stand. And in doing so, he lets his anger get out, and he really hurts these these punks who all happen to be teenagers as well. To the point where he has to bring one of the kids to the hospital himself, and he says, "Call the police and turn himself in." Essentially, um, he has a little heart to heart with the police chief, who shows up. She's like, All right, "You want me to arrest you?" He's like, "I'm turning myself in. Like, I lost control. I put on this mask, and I hurt these kids." She's like, "Yeah, um, he just had a concussion, and from what we understood, he pulled the 37 on this guy, and he's about to kill him just for 37 dollars. Part of it's probably gotten to kill this guy for 37 dollars because it's like, look, and she's like, from one law enforcement." Um, person, uh, I guess, agent to another. She's saying she regards him as a law enforcement agent. Like, go home. You know, don't worry about this. Like, if you and if you need help, you can always call me up if things get out of hand. And because like this whole time, you know, um, the Daily Bugle is always spouting all those nonsense about how he's a thief, and, like mm. a criminal, Spider-Man menace, <laughs> and and like. And he's and he's like and he's thrown out. He's like, oh, don't you know I'm a thief? I'm a, I'm a criminal. I'm all. She's like, she's like, she's like, yeah. Uh, no, get over yourself. You're, you're, she's like, what, you're what, twelve? <laughs> and but it's but it's interesting moment that Bendis throws in there. Like it didn't have to be in this arc. It didn't necessarily make the Harry Osborne and Peter Parker's art story interaction, at least on the surface, seem any more impactful. But it was because it. it was talking about it shows the conscious of like when you said earlier, Peter Parker is someone who rises to the occasion. His rise in this case was saying, I really did lose control. And I shouldn't be just going out there and being like, just because of powers, I'm I'm exempt from the law, I'm exempt from from doing what I should be doing, which is to protect and not to hurt. Um in this case these punk kids deserved what they got, but he was aware that he had lost control and that wasn't a good thing for him to do. Um which was a nice Precursor to when he, when Harry loses control, and he has no control whatsoever, really, other than to like be like, I need to hurt you enough to make you want to kill me. Yeah. And like I was like, okay, yeah, was just like and again, we're we're analyzing the storyline, but you could read this and just as a simple surface reading, it's just a fun, meaningful story, and. High in entertainment. Yeah, yeah. and that's comp- and that and, and I don't mind reading stories that are just pure entertainment. And in fact, that's why I read comics all the time is because I want entertainment. But then I like to think about them afterwards. But as long as I'm entertained at the up, at the front end, like if it's something I'm going to read again or recommend to somebody, like I'm doing now, it's like that's a good story. It doesn't have to be deep. But Bendis writes stuff with enough planning that I feel like there is depth to it. There's depth to it. And there's there's some metaphor, and it's not necessarily 
super super deep, but it's deep enough that it's something to think about in the kind of it's a character study really that he's yeah. doing, and, yeah. and it allows us to reflect upon ourselves too, like well, how we see the Walton lens of what's right and what's wrong. See, that's what I was referencing earlier. That's good storytelling because you, like you said, you have a simple story or a pretty simple story on yeah. the surface, but it's doing multiple work at multiple levels, and there are things at different levels if you want to look that deeply that you can that you can take away from it. You can enjoy it just as it is if you like, or um, you can read a little bit more into it. So yeah. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Seamus. Oh, you're welcome, guys. Thanks for letting me share. Yeah. It was, it was really fun revisiting this, and I'm glad I got a chance to actually read this whole article <laughs> <laughs> in this one sitting, too, at the same time. It's like, I I felt like I was like the listener, like, I'm being reintroduced to Ultimate Spider-Man and reminding myself why I loved it so much and why I still love it. You guys didn't see this, but while we were sitting around the table getting everything set up and the rest of us were talking, Shannon was just seriously sitting down, pouring <laughs> over the <laughs> Ultimate Spider-Man. He, he read the entire <laughs> comic while we were just... <laughs> Like yeah. every every moment when he wasn't talking, he was reading the comic. Absolutely, one hundred percent gross. I will say though, I kind of want to check that out now. You, you, well, you kind of saw here. You can read it like I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe now. Well, we're all the rest of us are in the middle of talking. Which yeah. <laughs> becomes a, a half man podcast because the span of everybody combined will be half a man. <laughs> Who's next, Albert? All right. So next up on our list of comics that we would recommend recommend to first-time readers or just in general, just good comics. Drew, what have you got for us today? So my superhero fiction recommendation is a book that isn't a Marvel or a DC comic. Um, it's a creator-owned comic. It's Invincible, Invincible by Robert Kirkman, Corey Walker, and Ryan Otley. Um, so... First of all, uh, I think a lot of people know who Robert Kirkman is because he's the guy who co-created The Walking Dead, uh, which is That's probably like one most... of the biggest comics yep. out there, and yep. there's long-running TV show, um, and Walking Dead is, you know, that's, ever since that came out, that's been one of uh, the top-selling comics, in, especially in trade format, so... It's, it's a big thing, um, yeah. and Invincible came out right around the same time frame, I think. It came, I think the first issue of Invincible came out in early 2003, uh, and for my money, I, I like it more than The Walking Dead, because Invincible has an ending. <laughs> <laughs> for me, endings give stories their meaning, so it really helps that it's a finite experience, a uh, finite series. So... Just to introduce the premise of the comic, Invincible is essentially a teen superhero comic. Uh, so that entails a lot of the things that we just talked about when we were discussing Ultimate Spider-Man. Um, you know, the whole concept of power and responsibility come into play. Uh, just dealing with teenage angst and problems. It's the whole, the hero's journey, you know, the hero's journey of, of growth, uh, learning how to not only be an adult, but to be a hero. Invincible is the name of the character. Uh, his, his real name is Mark Grayson. The premise of the story is Mark Grayson, uh, his father, is the world's most powerful superhero, a guy named Omni-Man. Uh, Omni-Man 
he's basically got like Superman powers. So he can he's got flight, super strength, super durability, healing. Uh, I think he's got vision and stuff like that. Um, he's he's basically an analog for Superman. He's also uh, Omni Man is also an alien uh, who came to Earth. He's supposed to be the protector of the planet. That's why his people sent him here. Uh, and he ended up marrying an Earth woman, and Mark Grayson is their son. Uh, and Mark Grayson, he, he knows all this growing up. He knows that his dad is this hero. Um, his mom knows that her husband's a hero. Uh, so there's no, there isn't that tension of uh, secret identity or anything like that. What there is at the beginning of the story is Mark Grayson wondering and wishing that he would get the powers that his dad has. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. if you knew your dad ha could do all that, why wouldn't you imagine what it would be like for you to be able to do all that too? Are there people kind of asking him like, why he doesn't have those powers? Is it kind of like a dad's shadow kind of thing? I don't or? think... So the, the general public doesn't know yeah, that exactly. Omni-Man is his father. Okay. okay. So it's only their family who knows. Um... There are other superheroes in their world. It's a, it's a world that's populated with superheroes. It's, so there's a lot of analogs to existing characters. Like there's their version of the Justice League and whatnot. And <coughs> most of the, you know, all, all these different characters. He, Kirkman does a good job of building up this world. Uh, actually, uh, in, uh, in a way, it, it kind of hints at like this wider superhero universe too. Because some of the characters that he made uh, from his other comics... Like Tech Jacket and uh, Fire Breather, Fire Breather and Brit, just these more obscure image characters end up sh showing up sometimes. Uh, Astounding Wolfman. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. that. <laughs> like none of none of them really had the lasting power of Invincible. Yeah, but uh, yeah that that's that's the world of Invincible and the character of uh, Mark Grayson, who basically. In the first storyline, he, he finally discovers he, he gains his dad's powers. I think he's, I forget exactly how old, 16 or 17 probably, just somewhere in high school, and he gains these powers, and he decides he wants to be a superhero too. So the, the whole story uh, after that is him learning how to be a hero, uh, getting involved with the superhero community, and like all sorts of, all the, all the adventures and experiences that entail that uh, kind of stuff, so you would expect him to face off against, you know, your typical muggers, uh, and move on to bigger fish with yeah. people with powers and, and drug lords or crime lords, um, and cosmic, yeah, inter intergalactic despots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, your 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 typical uh, superhero kind of stuff, but it's just done and and executed in a way that feels fresh. Um, yeah. This book came out around the time that Ultimate Spider-Man came out. It might have come out, I think it was like three years after. But they, they definitely have a similar sensibility. Um, not just because they're both about teenage superheroes, but because their creators really took the time to write characters that felt multifaceted. <coughs> they're not just... they don't Characters don't act dumb just for the sake of the plot, but they're actually... They, they behave and react... In ways that you would imagine real people in their position in their world with those rules how they would react mm. yeah. um yeah so I, that that's oh the other thing i got to talk about is uh the artwork because the artwork is 
exceptionally good. Um, the original artist was Corey Walker, and I think he did the first seven issues or so, and then he stepped out. Ryan Otley came in. Ryan Otley uh, has a pretty similar style. They're both they both kind of draw in a style that's a bit cartoony, and the coloring uh, throughout the series is pretty bright. Uh, it's not dour or grim at all, but it's very bright, yeah. which is pretty interesting because this book occasionally has graphic violence. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's got to be pretty interesting. It's, to see it's the graphic a, violence. Yeah, it, it's. I wouldn't recommend this to little kids. Yeah, uh, right. it's, it's not. It's not for uh, children. There's there's references to sex and things like that. Um, I, I guess because it's an, you know, an image book and the creator-owned book, he didn't feel beholden to the same restraints that Bendis might have had doing yeah. something like Ultimate Spider-Man, you yeah. know, where that's a corporate character. You're not going to have Peter Parker having uh, sex with Mary Jane when they're in high school, you know? <laughs> you're not. You're just not going to yeah. do that. Yeah. But uh, because, you know, Kirkman owns this, he can kind of do whatever he wants. And I, I wouldn't say there's gratuitous sex or gratuitous violence but uh when there's violence there are definitely some scenes where you're just kind of it's kind of surprising when you see how, vi how violent yes. it can be because <laughs> if you're just flipping through it like for the most part it's not really that violent yeah, yeah. uh but it to me that just makes the, the moments when there is violence just more it just makes it more brutal and shocking because yeah. yeah. there, there's some scenes when uh omni-man his, his invincible dad you know, he kind of goes nuts on some people, and he's tearing up their guts, like, yeah. punching nice. through bodies, and you yeah. see all their viscera <laughs> spill out. Uh, nice. There's blood everywhere. So yeah. It's it's just one of those kind of things, but it's not like that happens every issue. It's not it's not mind-numbing violence. It's violence that is there with a purpose, because you're supposed to be shocked. You're supposed it's not to an Eric Larson comic. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. No, I, and I have love for Eric Larson, so that's not even meant as a slight... <laughs> Um, the other thing that I, like, you mentioned Spider-Man a couple of times, yeah. so the thing that I, like, so there is, like, a connection there, so just for our listeners, so, mm -hmm. you know, um, Ryan Otley is going to be the current artist for The Amazing Spider-Man yeah. on the current run, so yeah. he's someone who's who's been in comics for a while, and that's, as far as I know, his first, like, mainstream, like, you know, big name sort of superhero I think so. I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure if he did anything else during Invincible. Yeah. So in Invincible, like I said, it started in 2003. Yeah. It just ended earlier this year, back in yeah. January or February. That was about 15 years of comics here, yeah. uh, and it's it's just it's it's something where you really get the satisfaction of seeing His a character grow. Yeah. yeah. I think that's. Not just him, but his supporting cast, too. There, there's definitely a handful of characters that you really get to see them grow up. Yeah. Um, you really get to see their their journey. One of the things that... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little spoiler right here, but I, I feel like it, this is a spoiler that, that's okay because it's... Like I said, the series is 144 issues. This spoiler probably happens around sometime within the first 10 or 12 issues. So it's not really that big of a deal, but the the whole thing with Invincible that like when it first started, the first few first few issues, I, I thought it was just you know really fun, 
really entertaining superhero comic about a teen superhero. Uh, but what really set it apart was the, this twist where you have Omni-Man uh, basically go rogue. And uh, turns out there's this one issue that's a turning point where Omni-Man, Invincible Dad, he goes out and basically slaughters their version of the JLA, slaughters a bunch of superheroes, and and it, it's revealed that he was sent to Earth because he was supposed to be the advanced scout for an alien invasion. So he came to Earth to observe the planet, uh, check out the defenses, and do whatever he could to weaken the planet for a full-scale assault by his people, uh, the Viltramites. That's what they're called, the Viltramites. So he does all that, and eventually Mark Grayson learns that his father is this villain. Yeah. So he has to do what he can do. Yeah. Wow. You know, <laughs> that's it's it's some really heavy stuff. It it gets the whole series gets pretty heavy, and I think that's that's another reason why I, I wouldn't recommend this to a little kid. Yeah. But you know, if you're if you're like a teenager or or someone or an adult or whatever, you know, this is like solid real entertainment yeah. but it's got depth to it like a lot of emotional depth and a lot of um just just depth in terms of the craft of the storytelling because it's so well executed in terms of pacing dialogue story structure the artwork is really good you can really see ryan Ali throughout the series he 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 just gets better and better yeah. like it starts out like he's pretty solid you know he does a good job of imitating cory walker's style in the first time he gets on board and as as the series goes on, he develops his own voice. His his, his lines, I don't know. It just seems it just seems like they're bolder and thicker, and yeah. and the detail increases. But he doesn't sacrifice any of the storytelling, uh, and it it just really sucks you into to this almost cartoon world. That's what it feels like. I agree. I agree. Just flipping through it, um, I gotta say, man, it's 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 eye candy. Yeah, to me anyway. eye candy. <laughs> yeah, it, the lines are uh, sharp. It's very graphic. Uh, it's very dynamic. Yeah. Um, he has just a really solid grasp of, you know, body language and character expression and facial expressions and just really selling those moments and, and giving them that like punch or that impact mm-hmm. to to underline whatever the story is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a solid recommendation. I feel like if you pick this up and you're just getting into it. Um, I can't really see you being disappointed with it. Yeah, exactly. And and the other nice thing is it has an ending, so yeah. <laughs> you're not going to just be reading a soap opera indefinitely. Yeah, there's always that. You'll get some closure. Yeah. The thing I wanted to say was, it. again, this is a comic that has, I think there are a lot of parallels between this and uh, the first choice of Ultimate Spider-Man by Shanus in that Here's a comic with a singular vision. It's Robert Kirkman all the way through, mm-hmm. and you're, he's essentially telling his epic of um, Invincible from you know from his early days up until whatever the ultimate conclusion is going to be. Mm-hmm. So I I do think that that makes for more compelling reading. Yeah. Um, in regards to what you were saying about uh, the spoiler about his dad, I I think that's actually like really great stuff too because. Uh, a lot of the times we have a lot of these stories where in comics you have characters that look up to their father figures as these noble uh, characters and they're they're people in their lives that sort of shape them to mm-hmm. become who they are, you know? Mm-hmm. But 
that's the thing about growing up is it's not always about you know you looking up to this person and becoming um and living and trying to like live up to their ideals sometimes it also means that the person the father figures and the mother figures in your lives part of growing up is also looking at them and realizing that they're human too and they don't yeah. always have the answers yeah. so that that's that's a perspective that we don't see in comics quite as often yeah i don't think because it's always like uncle ben was a sainted man yeah. and he died yeah. and i will live the rest of my life trying to live up to the ideals of this great yeah. man mon pa can yeah even bruce wayne's dead yeah. parents yeah you can never say anything wrong about them say yeah. anything bad about them exactly but, but uh invincible kind of subverts that it kind of reminds me of uh, when we were talking about Runaways, right? Because yeah. Runaways kind of subverts that expectation as well. Yeah. Um, it's funny how both of those also came out around the same era. Yeah. Did they? This came out around the same time? Yeah, Runaways was early 2000s. Okay. Yeah. yeah nice. There, the other thing I want to say about Invincible is, is that even though it's got kind of this heavy emotional content, it's definitely got a lot of fun too. Uh, yeah. Like in terms of just pure entertainment, if you like... Uh, you know, a lot of character growth and character development. It's got that. It's got a lot of action. There's a lot of um, long-running plot threads. So if, you, if you're the kind <coughs> of reader who likes to see something that's set up in one issue and then, you know, maybe a year or two down the line, you finally see the payoff. You know, it's, it's definitely got that kind of slow burn type of thing, but mm -hmm. it doesn't make you ever feel like you're being cheated. It's, it's not like teasing you, but it's just if, you, if you're paying attention, you'll pick up that, Oh, something, some clue that Kirkman laid in this yeah. issue is going to show up later on. You know, yeah. like it, it just makes the world feel like it's connected. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of comedy in there, in there too. There's, there's definitely things that just make you laugh because they're so ridiculous and mm -hmm. funny. Like there's, there was this one c character who's uh, basically a hyper evolved, super intelligent T Rex <laughs> scientist. Nice. <laughs> nice. Right. So that's awesome. you know, it's just stuff, <laughs> stuff that's kind of. That wouldn't really work in any other medium besides comics, I yeah. think. Because, yeah. you know, if they did a movie of that, it'd be it'd be weird. Like, I, I mean, it might be possible, that. but yeah. I think people would look at that and just go, that just looks unusual, you know, it yeah. doesn't fit. Maybe a cartoon, I could see it working, because the art in this comic is pretty cartoony. Yeah. But I just like, the fact that you can see that on the page and not feel any sense of dissonance or a you disconnection. Take it seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, there's, there's definitely lightheartedness to it too and even yeah. even the simple fact where invincible's costume was designed to look like the image comics logo right? <laughs> like you see that it's just the eye i was kind of <laughs> noticing that when yeah. i first saw the cover i'm like huh yeah. it's kind of familiar that was intentional what a plug Kirk. yeah it's, it's funny. i know cory walker yeah. that that was a pretty funny touch and i think the key word um that i'm hearing there is just like heart like the thing's got, it's got a, lot a lot of heart, heart. Yeah, yeah absolutely i love stuff like that yeah. All right. Moving on. Yeah. What about you, Albert? What is your recommendation for superhero fiction? Okay. So uh, before I wanted, before I went uh, go into this, I I do kind of want to go back to our initial uh, definition of like superhero fiction, and um, I wanted to focus on the emphasis of how superhero fiction is a genre examining the adventures, personalities, and ethics of superheroes. So, you know, for the for those He's of you, about to get all academic on us, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what the the, the work that I'm choosing is um, 
Albert just put on his monocle. (laughs) (laughs) And and my top hat. (laughs) I mean, the work that I'm choosing is actually, uh, I do think it's, there's a lot of um, layers to it. So, not to toot my own horn, but there's no horn to toot. I didn't write it, so. (laughs) (laughs) But you you are smart enough to appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't worry. I appreciate it, too. Thank you, thank you. The thing that I wanted to focus on was the idea of, um, yeah, so other than just telling stories where, again, like, you know, if I was to write a superhero comic, it'd probably be easy for me to just, you know, do a hundred pages of two guys punching each other in the face, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that that might be the simplest version of a superhero story, but um, it, it really does feel like the kind of stories, the thing about uh, superhero fiction is that that focus on ethics. I, I do think that's a big part of it. So um, now that I've discussed that a little bit, the, the comic book that I'm recommending is The Life and Times of Savior 20, written by Jean-Marc Dimitrius, Jean-Marc Dimitrius, and drawn by Mike Cavallaro. And it's published by IDW Publishing in 2009. Now, I want to give a brief summary of this before I discuss it even further, but it's, uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's essentially the story of a hero's crisis of faith in... Uh, of faith in the American ideal um, and his downfall. The The story starts out with a former world-renowned and universally beloved superhero, think uh, a Superman or a Captain America type of character, who is down on his luck and makes... And, and it goes backwards to tell the story of how he went from the, this I, this iconic American superhero to the dismal failure that he is, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you've read the comic, Drew. Yeah. Is that a pretty accurate yeah. assessment, or, or accurate uh, synopsis of the story without giving away too much? Yeah, that's yeah. good. So, um, I want to go into the themes or uh, of this book, in that, uh, yeah, uh, so although Savior 28 does have a lot of trappings of superhero comics, and that it's about a superpowered individual who takes on the various threats of his world. Um, I think in many ways it's an experimental work. This is a five-issue series, and John, uh, Jam D. Mateus only wrote the five issues, and there hasn't really been any expansion on it since. So, like, it it's a great superhero story that you can just read in one shot, and you kind of get everything that he's trying to tell you without having to deal with continuity or without you know, uh, trying to chase down more. It it says everything that it needs to say in those five issues. So, so the thing that I wanted to say about this comic is, it's sort of, in my mind, it's sort of an experimental comic, and I would actually kind of call it a post-superhero comic, Mm -hmm. in that it doesn't, it's, it's, tries to go beyond the, the limits of what superhero comics can be. It tries to explore more than what superhero comics are. Um, it's a story... So at the core of this story, uh, at the core of this comic, it's a story that confronts the issue of violence. But more than that, I, I think if you delve deeper, it's specifically a story about conflict resolution. Um, like So the first thing that I wanted to cite is it opens. The, the very first 
part of the comic opens with there's a superhero, there's this epic superhero battle between uh, Savior Twenty Eight and his his opposite, basically. And there's there's just some lines in here that like really jump out at me, and I feel kind of sum up exactly what Jam Demetrius is trying to say. Um, hell, every superhero movie, every action movie, pretty much ends the same way: fists, bullets, explosions, testosterone, collateral damage. You're not supposed to think about it. I mean, dozens, sometimes hundreds of people get hurt in brawls like this. People die. But unless somebody important goes down, you know one of the main characters. You know, one of the main characters? Who cares, right? <laughs> We've been programmed by our government, by our popular culture, by our heroes most of all, to believe that there are people who count and people who don't. And I think I think that sums up a lot of what this comic, or, or a lot of what Savior28 uh, is, chasing in, in, in his story, in these five issues. So the story of Savior 28 starts out with, again, he's this kind of classic American ideal superhero, but he comes... Basically, real-world circumstances cause him to reevaluate what it means to be a superhero. So he, he, for the first couple of decades of his career, he is content to kind of be... to, to just live in that cycle of beating up a villain, saving the day, and then moving on to the next villain, and just repeating that cycle ad nauseum over and over again. But then one day, September 11th happens, and he has this personal revelation. He's, he's kind of in the middle of his own depression when, when it happens, and when he sees this on TV, he realizes that there's, there's an evil in the world far bigger than, you know, the the hand-wringing mad scientist that he fights on a day-to-day -day basis. There, there's such a thing as systemic evil that exists. And he begins to go out into the world to try to seek out a different way, essentially. He goes out into the world to try to let people know that this kind of... this this method of living is not sustainable. This, this, this method of just us constantly using violence as a means of resolving these issues. All it does is just breed more violence. So, um, but the problem is that all sounds really good on paper, right? Like someone comes to you and says, hey, well, like we should try to renounce violence and we should try to be the better versions of ourselves and try to like, you know, live up to the better angels of our nature. But what ends up happening is he doesn't just meet resistance from the villains or, like, the people that you would expect to resist him, he starts getting resistance from his friends. He gets resistance from other superheroes who, who can't believe that this is happening, and they're not sure what he's doing and why he's doing or why he's suddenly become this way. He gets resistance from the government that he that he believes in, the flag that he believes in. He gets resistance from his, van, from his fans, even. Um, there's this one scene in the comic where there's this giant brawl between armies of superheroes and supervillains, and it's essentially this, you know, the brawls and all brawls, and it's just, it, it's, it's presented as just, you know, this massive battle, and everyone's just fighting, and it's just this spectacle, and in the middle of this battle, Savior 28 just kind of stops for a second and goes, what are you all doing? <laughs> like, look at yourselves, like, we're... 
Like, there's so much evil in the world, and this is what you're spending your time doing. We're just punching each other, and then what are we going to do? Send them to jail, and then do it again next month? Don't you think there's something wrong with this? And the, the, the crowds stop, and momentarily there's this brief instance where they look at each other, and they just go back to doing what they're doing, <laughs> you know? And it's just... Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, and so I think in a lot of ways this is a book that um, takes his takes J.M. DeMattis' personal philosophy on like violence and really tries to push beyond those boundaries because like even in that beginning line where he talks about how like he talks about movies movies are constantly feeding you the same thing where mm -hmm. it's like people hundreds and thousands of people die but it doesn't really the drama doesn't really intensify until someone that matters so there's it's this implication that yeah and lives matter but unless lois lane is saved like it doesn't matter you know <laughs> like Doomsday and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman can destroy this entire city, but if Wonder Woman, I mean, but if Lois Lane is in danger, that's when it really counts. That's when the stakes are, are on the table. Yeah, yeah. You know, so and true. it's ridiculous, so you know? <laughs> and there's this additional line in here where he goes, um, let me look for it. Uh... Uh... Oh, so he goes... People, we should mourn, and people who are just statistics. I think we buy into it because we have to. If we treated every death we heard about as if it mattered, we'd all go catatonic. Yeah. Yeah. That that sums it up, man. Yeah, that's, you that's know? That's brilliant. That's yeah. good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think another scene that I, that really jumps out about uh, this book to me, and, like, I... It, you, to you, those of you that are listening, like, you don't know how hard it is for me to, like, talk to you about this book without giving away so much of it. But it's, like, a book that I have a lot of genuine affection for because I really feel like it's it's something that explores ideas that are not common to comic books. Uh, ideas that are, that, it's it's almost transcend, transcendent, transcendental in what it's attempting to be, mm -hmm. you know? But there's this one scene where um, Savior 28 is holding a rally in a public park, and he's out there, and he's telling this story to, like, he's basically telling the world about love and, you know, peace and, like, nonviolence, and, you know, all these people come out, and they're just cheering him, and they're like, you know, they're, it's a huge love fest, everyone's just involved, and they're like, yeah, no more violence, you know, we should all renounce violence, peace and love, all this, it's all, it's all sounds really good, but then a supervillain attacks him while he's in the middle of this speech, and, and this supervillain, she doesn't care about that, she just knows that she hates Savior 28, and this is an opportunity for her to, like, get at him, so she shows up, and Savior 28 tries to reason with her he tries to appeal to her compassion and to her humanity and he, he's telling her we don't have to do this we don't have to like be violent to one another we can take our powers and our efforts and we can change the world and she just laughs in his face and then after she laughs in his face she just starts beating the crap out of him and he's over here trying to be non-violent <laughs> and she's just wailing on him and yeah. he's just taking it 
And the thing is, while he's taking it, in the back of his mind, he knows that she's going... She There's a chance that she could... Well, no, no, no. That's not what happened. So, so he's just taking the beatings, right? Yeah. And he can only do so much of that. And at one point, while he's taking these beatings, he just loses his temper. He goes crazy, and he beats the living crap out of her, essentially just putting her in a coma. And there's this amazing scene in the book where he realizes after he beats the hell out of her that, oh my gosh, I'm a hypocrite. These people, like, I'm trying to teach them to be better and that there's another way outside of violence. And I, they've just all seen that I'm a hypocrite. And the most depressing thing happens. The, all the people in the audience, they look at him and they don't hate him for it. They start cheering him because... <laughs> He's a hero, and they want they he did what they wanted to see him do. He saved them. He saved them, but he saved them all. He saved them all, <laughs> not just the men. Yeah, but the women, but and the children, children too. <laughs> but it's a depressing moment for me because here he is. He's trying to teach them to like transcend and to be better, and all they want is more of the same. All they want him is to be a thug. It's almost a commentary on, or maybe it is a commentary on, on a, not just culture in general, but... It's a commentary on fandom. Yeah, specifically <laughs> fandom, comic yeah. book fandom, yeah. you know, where people always want to read the same kinds of superhero comics over and over. Yeah. It's always got to be about some sort of event where the heroes team up and beat up some bad guy yeah. by, by punching him in the face a bunch of times. And when people want to do stories that are about something besides that, those are always hard sells. Yeah. Well, it's a really powerful commentary as well. Like you said, though, kind of on the human condition that um, I think deep down we all have a sense of how things should go, how they could go, mm -hmm. um, how we should treat each other. And I think each of us has that sense of, you know, I, most people don't like to be punched in the face or stabbed or raped or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like... We all have that sense we know when we've been violated. Yeah. Um, we know when something hurts or when someone's been mistreated. We yeah. don't want that for ourselves. And yet, yeah. we have a sense of how we should treat others, but for whatever reason, we don't do it. Yeah. And that's we could have, as a species, collectively kind of created nearly anything that we wanted, but you look around and like... This is what we chose to do. This is the we world were, we're living in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is the one we perpetuate as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just want to read that page to you, like, just the, the thought balloons, because I think it's really amazing, like, just powerful writing, yeah. like, even, even now. Like, I haven't read this in years, but this this sequence of, of panels, like, always stood out to well, me. Are, are you going to do the voices, too? No. Well, well, why not, man? Because it's it, too good. I love it when you do I don't want to ruin it. It's too good. But, but you do such great voices, man. <laughs> I love your voices. I can't. I your can't. voices make me it smile. It would be... I'll do one for you later, but it would just be just... <laughs> It would be a tarnish on this. Yeah. I, I love it too much to, to, to disrespect it. Yeah, don't ruin the moment. Jimmy was virtually indestructible, sure, but that didn't mean he couldn't feel pain. Maybe not the same way the rest of us do, but I've seen him beaten, I've seen him hurting, and he was hurting then. But for all of the damage Jupiter inflicted on 28's body, I could tell that this pain ran deeper. I let her keep hitting me, he told Bill Moyers, just a few weeks before the assassination, because I didn't know what else to do. It was one thing to say I was turning my back on violence, but faced with this superhuman psychopath, 
what were my options? Launch into a chorus of Imagine and hope she started singing along? <laughs> Let her pound me into hamburger and then turn her attention to the thousands of innocent people in Central Park? So what, Moyers asked. So what, Moyers asked. Did you do? The only thing I knew how to do, I reverted to type. When Jimmy had his first breakdown back in 45, the government kept it under wraps. The public never knew that their beloved hero had totally lost it. But this time, he went batshit in front of the whole country. Batshit in front of the whole damn country. And they loved him for it. That's one of those scenes with the narration and and the imagery. It's it's that commentary aspect again. I think that's what gives this work all that depth because it's it's layered commentary. You know, like it, it's commentary on fandom and superhero comics, but it's also commentary on society at large, right? Like yeah. it, it's like on one level, if you're a superhero fan, you can read that and you're like, wow, like there's some real like sharp criticism about comics here about superhero comics but from a more like universal standpoint right there's there's that commentary of, about how people revert to type yeah you know we we want what's simple and what what always works and we always do what we do and yeah. that's the world that we get yeah. and it, it, it's it's layered stuff man I, yeah you gotta appreciate it's a beautiful you gotta story appreciate it. yeah and especially those moments the way they're uh, rendered with the art i mean here yeah. If you just listen to the narration and you don't pick the book up, you're, you're really doing yourself a disservice yeah. to actually see the battle and see the facial expressions. And I'm not going to give too much away, but the stuff that happens yeah. that's uh, underlying the text as it's running parallel, it's it's a really powerful moment. Yeah. We were talking about it earlier, but Mike Cavallero, like, I, like we've never seen him work on anything before or since this comic. And he's, he's a, like, his art style on this is, it's kind of cartoony, but mm -hmm. uh, it works for the story. Like I, I like it as it's hard for me to imagine this story with anybody else at this yeah. point. Yeah. And uh, Jam Mateus and him, like if this is the only thing that Mike Cavallero ever did, I, I would say that it's a heck of a note to go out yeah, on. He can you know? be really proud of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's something of such high quality, high caliber. And yeah, like I, I know that. I didn't necessarily give too much away except for just kind of the general themes and ideas of the book, but I do think that those are some powerful themes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, I would recommend this to someone as a first-time reader, if only because it shows that there's more to comics than just... It's not that I don't enjoy like the, the, the plot uh, that they normally do uh, of just, you know... Typical yeah. bang action. Exactly. Yeah. It's I, I love it when that's well done, you know, but this is something that says a whole lot more and really makes you contemplate you know, the nature of not uh, human nature, I guess. Yeah. You know? I mean yeah. so it's I, I don't know if that's for everybody. I, I hope that it is. I hope it's the sort of work that appeals to everyone's um you know, better natures or and like tries to make them really contemplate like when they're looking at their when they're processing their entertainment or their mm -hmm. literature or whatever like is this the only kind of story that we can tell or like is there something that I can open my mind up to more and kind of accept into what I'm what I'm reading you know yeah open your mind up to yeah. the different things this yeah. is this 
this is a very literary comic. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's it's something that's got depth to it. And I, I would also recommend it to people who aren't even who aren't even interested in superhero comics. Yeah. Like if if you don't like superhero comics, this is still worth reading. Absolutely, absolutely. I think if your only view of comics, if if you can't get past superheroes, it's something that I think is only hurting you in this case because mm-hmm. there's so much more to this than just the fact that he's a super super powered individual who's fighting other super powered individuals. Mm-hmm. That really makes you play, um, ask a lot of questions on, you know, how we place value on life and culture. Yeah. Well, life and death. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good pick, man. Good pick. Yeah. So, everybody, try to read it. And, you know, if you're new to comics, I, I, I think it's a pretty high bar to me. But, yeah. And if, even if you're not new to comics, I, I think it's something that a lot of people can learn from. I'm a big uh, J.M. DiMatteis fan. And yeah. That's probably pretty high up there for me yeah. in terms of all of his works. I think, yeah, most of us, yeah, all of us here at the pod have mostly good things, if not only good things to yeah. say about him. Yeah. 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 He's one of the great writers of our era. Yeah. So, and yeah, and you gotta appreciate. He's kind of a hidden gem too. I don't think, like when people think of, you know, the great writers. Yeah, people always go, oh, Alan, Alan Moore, Moore yeah. Grant Morrison. Yeah. He's or, had a prolific career, man. Yeah, JMDM's yeah. been around for a long time. Yeah. He always does great work. Yeah. Even his lesser works, you know, they're still entertaining. Yeah. There's, but when he's like on fire, like his classics are real classics. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like we we talked about uh, Craven's Last Hunt. Yep. On yeah. our podcast, yeah. and we did the top twenty-five. Yeah. And this is of that quality. Yeah. Life Definitely. and Times of Saber twenty-eight is Absolutely. of that quality. Wow. Yeah, it's sort of a hidden gem. I didn't know about that one. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Thanks, Albert. No problem. What about uh, you, Zach? What you got for us? Mm. What are we talking about? Yeah, it looks like I'm taking up the rear. Um, Why'd you make that face, Albert? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. No, my my pick was uh, Dark Knight Returns. Uh, it's, pre- it's pretty well known. Uh, creative team Frank Miller, uh, Lynn Varley, and I think it was Klaus Janssen on mm-hmm. Inks. The, the famous, famous Klaus Janssen. I, of course, since I'm an artist, I definitely Klaus Janssen is one of the biggest names for me, as far yeah, as inking is concerned. Definitely. Um, the art throughout the whole thing is just really, really solid. Obviously, uh, Frank Miller just has that. He's just got an eye for those those iconic moments and um, the way the uh, grids are laid out. It, it probably looks dense, you know, at first blush to if someone doesn't read comics a lot. Um, He's got pages that have 16 panels. Yeah, yeah. So it, it can be it can be a little dense in parts, um, but there's a reason for it. Um, the it's, it's really about pacing, and it's about setting up that rhythm and pulling the reader into the story, and also um, the graphic element that's going on is kind of underlying what some of the characters are doing and, and kind of those interactions that are going on. Uh, for instance, there's a lot of sort of psychoanalyzing and psychologically deconstructing Batman within the story and, and you know, seeing what makes him tick. And there's a lot of scenes where uh, maybe a psychologist would be on television, like, explaining this stuff. And it's just this really dense, like, grid of panels because that's kind of what that moment is. That's what the moment feels like. Um, so it's just sort of a lot of using the page structure 
uh, to underline the story. Uh, I'll back up a little bit from the art aspect of it. Maybe and, give a synopsis of the story? Yeah, yeah. I, I figure probably you'd want to understand the story first. <laughs> but uh, basically, it's kind of funny because this contrasts to what we were saying earlier about, um, you know, having... We have a couple of stories where there's an aspect of uh, youth and sort of a David and Goliath sort of coming of age kind of story. Um, this is kind of the opposite. This is a story about, you know, what happens when you're sort of at the end of your career as, as a superhero or looking, looking at um, what am I going to leave behind, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. So this story is dealing with a Batman that's uh, much older. He's probably in his 50s right now, and he's, you know, just nearing that point where he's probably any sane person would be thinking about retiring. Um, <laughs> but, of course, Bruce Wayne being Bruce Wayne, the story is him um, working out a lot of his, his demons, his baggage, these, these things that won't let go of his mind to the point where he's absolutely just driven and compelled, and he, he can't let go of this thing that he's doing, this almost uh, compulsion. And so you see him fight through many tiers of, of villains, each of which, if you want to look at it that way, can actually be seen as kind of an extension of an internal struggle that he's working out within himself. Uh, without giving too much away, he does, he does wind up resolving that in the end of the story, but not before... Uh, a, a lot of things happen along the way. So, I mean, that's, I feel like it's as good a synopsis as I can give without giving away too much. Mm. So, um, why would you, what, what, what about this comic makes it something that you would recommend to new readers or just in general? Yeah, for uh, new readers, there's, there's a couple of things. I could see an argument for saying that maybe it's not the best book for new readers because it is uh, sort of, I don't want to say a deconstruction, but it's sort of um, a look at Batman towards the end. Mm -hmm. And it's it's sort of contrasting Batman with the Batman that has come before that. Um, the reason I would recommend it to readers who are getting into, just getting into Batman, um, is even though that's true, all that stuff is true, it, it kind of really gets to the core of what makes Batman Batman. It gets to the core of what makes Batman tick. Mm. And you see all that stuff laid there and just really viscerally thrown in your face as each layer is stripped away. Mm. Um, you see kind of Batman without all the trappings or without all the, you know, other bells and whistles that you might see him with in, in some of the other uh, issues or some of the other things that you see when he's younger. Um, this is just like raw, bare bones in your face. Like, you know, I've got nothing but my fists and I'm just going to throw down kind of Batman. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, it's a book that will, if nothing else, it will get you into the character. It will give you a massive respect for the character. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, Christopher Nolan film, right? Like you see the end and you're going to start working your way backwards. How did he get to this point? You, you know, it makes your mind start working. Um Plus, Batman's already a pretty well-known, um, pretty well-known uh, superhero, mm. and the last—I uh, won't say the last because 
actually the one with Bane came after that. But the Dark Knight with the Joker was loosely based on a lot of the stuff that's in here. So already there's kind of a familiarity with it, um, just in pop culture in general. Mm. But yeah, it's it's a really just sort of gripping character analysis on, on many, many different levels. Mm. The other thing as well is it was uh, groundbreaking when it came out. Um, Frank Miller did something then with Batman that hadn't really seen before hadn't really been seen before <clears throat> we kind of take for granted that kind of uh you know dark brooding kind of, batman. yeah gritty yeah. batman but um this is one of the places where it started mm. it, there are people like uh, neil adams and, and other guys who, who started to move in that direction before but frank miller just he he took the things that he knew from his own world mm. and he just injected all the streets and all the grit, all those shadows. You made it hard boiled. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that that sort of image that we have of Batman today, of you know being the gritty, the hard boiled, um, kind of dark brooding uh, person, that was really solidified with all this. Um, so this Batman is to sort of the Batman comics, kind of what the Matrix was to films. Like we hadn't seen anything like that before it came out and it kind of set the tone for a lot of things that came after it. Mm. Um, so if for no other reason, then it's, it's so historic and so iconic. Um, you would, if you're going to get into that, then I'd say it's definitely one of the storylines that's up there to familiarize yourself with. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely one of the most influential comics ever. Mm, really. yeah. <laughs> I think there's a good chance that when we do our, Top 25 DC comics of all time. Absolutely. This is going to be most likely in the top five, I would imagine. This is, yeah, it's a comic that just instinctively is a name that I would, or is, is a, a comic that I would pull mm -hmm. in, in every conversation in terms of, like, greatest DCs. So it, it wouldn't surprise yeah, me. Yeah, it's just one of those comics where when, you, when you, people talk about some of the greatest comics of all time and how the late 80s was a fertile period, you know, you had... You had The Dark Knight Returns, you had Watchmen, and you had Mouth. Mm, you know, yeah. Those are the three seminal works yeah. that people, that always come to mind. Yeah, um, yeah it's it, man, too. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to mention is, um, you, you mentioned like how gritty it was, and not just in terms of uh, the art or the look of it, but uh, Frank Miller has just this excellent sense of dialogue where... There are just so many good lines that come out of oh, this yeah. book. Like just, it's and, quotable. Yeah, it's yeah. quotable, and he he sets them up so that it's just they're just kind of the perfect action movie lines. And they, I'm not gonna lie, they put a little like they make me shudder just a little. Like just when I think about them, you know, <laughs> <laughs> shudder. How come? It's just it, from. Pleasure, I guess. Whoa, <laughs> interesting response. To yeah, pleasure. it's like, man, that's so. Like, it's one of those things where when when somebody else writes it and you see it or hear it or something, it really makes you go, man, I wish someday I was just in a position where I could like say <laughs> that to someone. Right. It just makes you feel tough, you know. Yeah, it's just got that punch yeah. to it. And, yeah. And the timing's just right. The like, there's that one scene where um, he's fighting the, uh, the the mutant boss. The yeah. mutant leader. The oh, mutant leader. I love that, dude. That's my favorite I love scene that as scene. well. And uh, basically, the, the first time they fought, the mutant leader kicked Batman's butt, just yep. beat him up real bad, and Batman had to go back, lick his wounds. Yeah. And now he's prepared, though, because he knows what to expect. Yep. And 
he fights this mutant gang leader in the in some like in a, a mud, mud pit. pit. It's a yeah. mud pit, and <laughs> and the entire gang is just circled around him, watching. He does this. He so he breaks the mutant leader out of jail, yeah. so that he can get him in this mud pit just where to beat him up. Yeah, where <laughs> all his gang minions can watch this happen. Yep. basically. <laughs> Yeah, he, he essentially makes an example out of him. Yeah, I, I love the dialogue in that scene where Batman... But well, what does he say? He messes him up, and right when he's laying down these these heavy blows and, and disabling the mutant leader, he just says something like, You don't get it, boy. This isn't a mud hole. It's, it's an, an operating, operating table. <laughs> and I'm the surgeon. <laughs> That would be a great line to say somebody as you're yeah. beating them up in a mud hole. <laughs> yeah. It's scary. I can only hope that if I'm ever in that situation and I have the upper hand, I have the, you know, mental acuity and wherewithal to be so coherent that I could say something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that would definitely be, like, just a killer line, like, yeah. at, at yeah. that exact moment. Yeah. You guys have to remember, at this point, like I said, Batman's not exactly young anymore. He's yeah. just, like, this, this grisly old man, and he's in this pit with this, like, I don't know, 25, 20-year-old 20 dude. Yeah. And he's he's just going to teach the youngsters how it's done. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, there's there's plenty to be enjoyed with this book. My mom bats don't shiv. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nasty. Um, so, the slang with the mutants, they have yeah. their own their own little uh, lingo. Yeah, it's it's interesting because this this comic came out in the 80s and it it almost projects on it's this weird like it's this weird look at what 80s culture would have been like if it had continued <laughs> indefinitely into the future. It's kind of what Frank Miller envisioned. Like, I don't think Frank Miller pictured what, like, the advent of the hipster. Yeah, I, think, I think he did. I think he envisioned it perfectly. If you read Watchmen, there's all those kids running around with top knots. That was Alan Moore. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, but... Like top knots. <laughs> I forgot about the top knots, man. Man say. buns, man yeah. buns, right? So Alan Moore figured it out, uh, but like the horror, the horror. Like everyone you don't like man buns? No, not a fan of man buns. Oh, okay, okay. So everyone here still has like visors, and they're like, "My mom, bats don't shit." Yeah. <laughs> like he, like you know, takes the existing slang and culture of the '80s and just. Wait, is that what people said in the '80s? No, but I think he just assumed that. That was the natural progression of '80s culture I, I, I that it was going to get. I think to he was point. trying to develop uh, believable teen slang. Yeah, I think that's what that was all about. I well, know. I kind of read it as more of a, a Clockwork Orange kind of thing, where it's like he just created yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. would have been in that world. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of what a Clockwork Orange was. Like, they, they, he created a slang for their world and their, their world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of this. Um, I was listening to Kevin Smith on his podcast, and he was talking about this book, and he made an interesting point where he was saying that by using, by making up his own slang, he sort of made it timeless in, in that yeah. it's not rooted in whatever the slang was of that current day. It's just made up. It's its own thing. It's its yeah. own thing. So when you hear so, someone say, my mom bats don't shiv, he nasty. Yeah. You don't think... Like, oh, imagine, that's so 80s. Yeah, whatever, imagine yeah. if those guys were saying, Whoa, Batman's gnarly, dude. He's Why a tubular. <laughs> exactly. Calabunga. <laughs> Why are you so rad, Batman? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, stop reading. Put it down right there. We're done. Uh, yeah, and this was a comic, like, Frank, 
Miller had like such a impact on comics at the time. Like even something like Ninja Turtles, for example, mm-hmm. is something that the creators clearly were emulating like his style of storytelling mm-hmm. when they when they came up with the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. So you know Yeah, man, Frank Miller is super prolific. And this work is just yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's so much you can Such say about it. Such impact on it, yeah. Yeah, and and even within the book itself, um, there's there's always this internal struggle, and this is kind of what I mean when I say we're uh, getting to the essence of Batman. But there's always this internal struggle um, in Batman himself, where there's this line that he will never cross, but he's always just skating on the edge of of crossing over it. He's always just on that edge of tension between. I'm really pushing it, but I'm not going to cross over. Um, I'm not going to give too much away, but <laughs> there's a scene with uh, the Joker in there that's just... Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it is it is one of the classic Batman scenes, but it just encapsulates, it illustrates that yeah. that moral tension within the character um, like nothing else I've seen. So, like I said, it's it's a treat. You should, you should pick it up. You should definitely read it. Um there's just so much of uh, like quintessential Batman in there. I mean, Superman even shows up at one point. But <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a whole exchange between them. But yeah, yeah. again, don't want to give away too much. Yeah. When you say uh, the story does a really good job of encapsulating the essence of Batman, how would you describe or elaborate upon what Batman's essence is? What yeah. Who is Batman? Well, he's someone who's responding still to what happened to him when, when he was a kid. You know, mm-hmm. there's that one galvanizing instant when he sees his parents murdered in front of him and something clicks, like it, it, it changes him. And his reaction or how he, how he deals with that um, afterwards sort of spawns, obviously, him becoming Batman. But his... The, the hero or the person of Batman, especially by this point, by the time you get to the the Frank Miller Batman, um, he's kind of defined, again, like I said, by that sort of moral tension of trying to make the world a better place and make sure that nothing like what happened to him happens to someone else. Um, he wants to make sure that never happens to anyone else, but at the same time, he doesn't want to become what he's fighting. Mm-hmm. So his kind of that essence that I'm talking about is having that sense of morality, but almost looking straight at the monster and not and trying not to become the monster, trying to never cross that line. It's it's not that dissimilar from Daredevil when you think about it, but um, yeah, I would say that's that's definitely a big part of what defines Batman. Mm-hmm. That's deep, man. Mm. You were profound. <laughs> what did you think about uh, the whole thing with Superman in The Dark Knight Returns? Um, given that I have never been a big Superman fan, I see. See, see, it all. Yeah, ouch. Thrills. There, there's a lot of good Superman stories out there, but just given that I'm not usually a huge fan. Um, seeing him get stomped was, was kind of gratifying, <laughs> but, but, 
there's a whole sequence sequence of lines in there that um I was waiting for you to bust that because you had the book open to that page oh, for man. so long, man. Yeah, it's just it, it's the page where where Batman <laughs> stomps <laughs> Superman in the face. So just spoilers, and this is an older comic, but so you know if you haven't read it, shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> But essentially, there's a there's a point in the comic where, and I would say that this is one of the more famous uh, things about the Dark Knight Returns. But there's a point in the comic where Batman fights Superman, mm-hmm. you know, and like Drew was implying or trying to get to, uh, there are a lot of really good lines that just come out of that exchange between Bruce and Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just that last scene where, I mean, there's a lot of good dialogue leading up to it, um, but just that final scene in the battle where um, Bruce is basically just finishing him off. He says, I want you to remember, Clark, in all the years to come, in your most private moments, I want you to remember my hand at your throat. I want you to remember the one man who beat you. Then after that, his heart kind of stops, and actually, Superman has to save him. <laughs> but he pretty much, he pretty much wins that fight. I yeah, mean, yeah. at that point, he's just stomping on his face. Superman and, knows who won that fight. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. enough. He did. Yeah, he did just enough to let him know. Exactly. Yeah. So he he sort of put him in his place. Yeah. It was just it was a fun scene for me because there's always been kind of that tension between Bruce and Superman because they do not see eye to eye about how things should be done most yeah. of the time. Um, and I think there's Batman partially sees him as, as kind of a Boy Scout and just wants to stick it to him and yeah. kind of put him in his place sometimes. So it was kind of, uh, you know, he finally got his moment. So I think it's it's a great moment and it's a great comic, but it's also something that um, I feel in more popular culture gets, they kind of, I guess, extrapolate on that a lot. Or, like, it gets used, it's a moment that gets used a lot and to to lesser effect because the people that do often take it don't necessarily have the same talent for, like, communicating what, what that moment is about, yeah. you know? So, yeah. I think the most popular example is, like, Batman v Superman. And it just feels like the only <laughs> thing that people want from that is, like, the, it feels like they read The Dark Knight Returns and their only takeaway was, people just want to see Batman and Superman fight. People want to see Batman beat up Superman. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, bro. Yeah, bro. Batman tougher than Superman. Do you even lift? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Gronk hungry. Gronk <laughs> like spaghetti. Hulk smash. Hulk smash. <laughs> Meatheads. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a really good scene. And it also highlights another one of those, um, one of those quintessential Batman themes, right? Like, uh, Batman as the tactician, the detective, the person who has always um, tried to think through every angle of the fight before he even goes into the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, the whole thing's just very, very Batman all the way through. Mm-hmm. As I think as I've grown older, um, my appreciation for DKR continues to increase. Yeah. Because as I get older, I like seeing old men come out of retirement <laughs> and beat up younger men. You know, there's something about that that just warms my crusted old heart. <laughs> getting his plenty, <laughs> Exactly. There was a time when 
I did think Clint Eastwood would have been a great Batman. Yeah, well, he's yeah. well past that point. Yeah, he's yeah. past that point now. But true, maybe like twenty years ago, yeah. that was that would have been a cool thing to see if yeah. they had ever been able to make that happen. But at least we do have the animated movie adaptation of With Peter Weller, baby. Yep, yeah. RoboCop. <laughs> and I think he's just as good as Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah. All right. He All really right. nailed the voice, man. The, yeah. the animated movie is yeah. one of the. That's probably the best Batman movie. Yeah. yeah. He's got a gravelly voice, and he just sounds tough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he sounds like he's lived through a lot. Yeah. Which is how Batman, at this stage of his career, should of his sound. Life, should sound. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's there's, just worn out. Yeah, there's just one really good part where he's, uh, I think he's he's up against some thugs or something. I can't remember what the context was, but he's uh, sneaking into this, this tower, and these thugs are all a lot younger than he is, but he just... He just hands it to him, man. Like he's he comes up from under the ground and drags one yep, of them in. I remember that. Um, so he's having since he's older now, he's having to employ like a little bit more strategy, fight a little bit uh, smarter. But I mean, he's still just hurting people. Is that the same scene where he breaks through a wall and just like yeah. grabs the guy <laughs> by the neck from yeah. behind? Yeah, yeah, that's the exact same. Complaining really loves that. <laughs> yeah. The action in in the comic is just yeah. really well depicted. The all the fight scenes are so well choreographed. You can yeah. really see the flow of everything. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because um, reading the comic graphically, like in the sense of the pictures themselves, it's, it's not necessarily uh, a cinematic quality, but the way that it feels, the way that it reads, the way that it hits you is like epic like it's it's beyond cinematic mm-hmm. i'm actually looking at the scene right now where um he finally defeats the the mutant boss right so and he's oh here it goes yeah it's an operating table not the <laughs> surgeon the line yeah. right after that he's he's just beating this man like with every hit is breaking a bone he's breaking something he says there's a big like crack right something tells me to stop with the leg yep. i don't listen to it and <laughs> yep. he just keeps going so yeah. good so good. Yeah, yeah. It's much but, to be enjoyed. Yeah. Frank Miller's panel to panel storytelling is so good. Yeah. Um the pacing and the just the fact that he how he frames information within the panel. Like he tells so much with just some some of the panels don't even have a whole lot. Like this panel right here, right? Yeah. yeah. It's it's just some shadows and some and basically Wisers. a red line through Silhouettes, some heads. Yeah. You just yeah. But you can tell that they're just enraptured by what they're looking at. Yeah. Just from the way that they're posed. Some of this, I'm not going to lie, has almost a Will Eisner-esque feel, feel to it. Oh, it surprised um, me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, some of the body language and, and the way things are framed. And, you know, there's, there's like, some of the beats in the storytelling um, kind of throw back to that for me. Yeah, I think it's one of the subtler qualities of a really great comic that a lot of people may not really think about because when you're reading a comic I think for the it's fair to say for the average person they're just reading it to enjoy the experience yeah but I think for us because we've read so many comics we're we can read it to enjoy it but we can also read it with a critical eye and, and to just examine the craft of it all yeah and when we really take the time to examine the craft of this comic it's just amazing it it's something that's that people still rip off and imitate all the time like 
the stuff in the beginning of the story where um, Miller basically uses these uh, TV uh, talking heads to kind of explain the backstory of the world and everything that's going on. He, he, he's able to convey so much information using such a simple trick. Uh, and it doesn't take up that much space in terms of page, pages. But nowadays, you see that all the time in comics. People are always doing that. Just to, It's just a way of exposition without making it really feel like exposition. Mm-hmm. Without taking up a whole lot of space. Yeah, yeah. But Frank Miller, man, he, he started doing it here and made it popular. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's got those... Um those graphic storytelling sort of like bag of tricks and it's it's something that a lot of artists since then have really drawn on and really run with but it's like we keep saying like a lot of the genesis of that stuff that we see now he was kind of the godfather yeah he was kind of the forerunner and i don't even know if he was you know i I can't say without beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the first person who ever used that technique but yeah yeah, he was the guy who made it popular yeah exactly i I can i feel confident saying that it's like a lot of people will will cite uh, Frank Miller's work like as a major influence. Yeah, their own. definitely. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of this one time uh, I was in college and I was hanging out with one of my friends. He was he was an art major. Uh, I don't remember if there was a distinction between like what kind of art major he was, but I know he was into really fine art um, and and uh, as well as uh, modern art uh, stuff like that. Um, so he, he did a lot of paintings that were very, you know, abstract and, uh, yeah, stuff like along those lines that you'd see at the SF MoMA or something. Uh, I remember this one time we were hanging out and he was looking at the comics I had in my hand and I had two comics with me. I had, uh, this comic had Dark Knight Returns and I had Kingdom Come and he just kind of like asked if he could see what. I was looking at, and he was flipping through them, and he, he, he flipped through Dark Knight Returns, and he was just kind of looking at it, and I was like, I think because he opened it, I, was, I just started commentating, and I was like, oh yeah, like I love that art, so good, yeah. and then and then he was like, oh yeah, it's alright, and then he opened up Kingdom Come, and he was like, whoa, now this is real art. Oh, wow. <laughs> there, wow. Was a, there was a part of me that oh, was like, wow. dang, oh. that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting, though, for someone who, you know, professes to be into, like, abstract art to, I mean, I I get it that, to some degree, you need to have a baseline, uh, I guess, ability to draw before you can do abstract art and you can call yourself a professional abstract artist or whatever, but, Mm -hmm. um... But for him to, like, kind of be more drawn to something like Kingdom Come as opposed to... Yeah, like a Norman Rockwell kind yeah, of yeah, style yeah. painting. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. yeah. I was oh. kind of crestfallen. <laughs> both, are, both are really good in their own right, but it's just, oh, yeah, absolutely. you know, there's different ways and different types of uh, artwork that, that you can appreciate. I mean, this is, I would say this is no less on par, even though it's, it's done in a different style. Um, like I said got Klaus Janssen on inks and, yeah. and Frank Miller illustrating the thing. I couldn't ask for anything more. I mean, like I have to admit also, like th- this book has been out for decades at this point, and yeah. um, I remember looking at it when I was a kid, and my first impulse wasn't that I enjoyed it. And this was, you know, as a kid, you know, it didn't take till I was 
probably. I, I, I think my first reading of this was actually when I was in college. I, like, I hadn't read it in my teens or anything like that. So it was definitely something that I had to kind of sit and look at for a long period of time before I could really kind of appreciate it. Yeah. 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 I, I guess it's a comic where when you look at the art, it's not very flashy if you're just looking at it yeah. with no context. But when you're taking it in as an experience... When you're reading the story, Absolutely. that's when you can really appreciate what yeah. he's doing. Yeah. I mean, even like the the inking and the shading, like when you really pay attention to it, it's, it looks really good. Like mm. the the characters have a lot of weight to them. Like look at that panel right there. Yeah. The the guy who's you getting kicked guy. in the sternum or whatever that is. Yeah. It. There's that momentum. Yeah. There's the body language. There is the body mechanics. There's that sort of anatomical shorthand that happens right mm -hmm. yeah. the sartorius comes in and sort of wraps around and you see what would be like the terminating point like mm -hmm. right in the knee like everything's there it's all on point but it's just done with this sort of effortless grace that you see it and it doesn't really look like anything like you're, you're not really thinking about the technicalities or the mechanics of it you're engrossed in the story you yeah, just exactly. you read it yeah. and you're just lost yeah and i'm telling you that's good storytelling. Like, that's a gift. You're looking at a gem right there. Even on the page um, opposite that, it would be on my left right now, but there's there's that scene that I was talking about earlier with the thugs, and he comes up through the floor, right? Grabs the guy's foot, and, and he pulls him down. There's that line, uh, the guy cocks his gun, and he's looking around. He doesn't know, you know, where's Batman? He's flipping out. He comes up, he grabs the leg, and all you see is, like, the silhouette with the eyes sort of, yeah. like, pointing <laughs> up through the floor at the guy. Welcome to hell. And then he just grabs him <laughs> and pulls him straight through the floor. Now, at that point, you're completely engrossed in the story and you're just, okay, what's going to happen next? You see that moment? Bam. You're just, wow, like, what? what's going to happen to this guy? So you're not thinking about the whole layout of the page being vertical. You're not mm -hmm. thinking about the grid mm -hmm. that's going on where you get that one, two, three, bam. And then you get hit with that staccato sort of, like, punch in the gut when he pulls the guy through the floor. You're not thinking about the selling point or the way that the sound effects and everything turn into graphic elements to sort of underline all the all the action that's going on there. And so there's this sort, sort of like beat-by-beat beat action where you're walked through this whole thing and you have that experience with the character. You, you go through it and you, know, you just get lost. You're just you're in the story. And from cover to cover, and obviously there's quite a few pages, from cover to cover, you're never taken out of the story. It never skips a beat. It's just like the pacing and everything. Um, it's just, it's unbelievable. Just, if you if you are a person who likes to look at the mechanics of something like that, um, you can really enjoy it at that level, and if you just want to read a good story... Mm -hmm. um, you, you just can, want entertainment. Yeah, yeah. You, you will be entertained. Yeah. I promise you, you'll be entertained. Yep. It's definitely not for children. Um, <laughs> it's not for people uh, who don't like a lot of really, I guess, grisly violence or uh, very darker themed things. But you know, if you're if you're just someone who's looking to get into Batman and you know you're, you're not afraid of a little uh, gloves off kind of action, then yeah, that's you will not be disappointed. Dude, we should uh, take a picture of that page for the Instagram. Just so people can see, you know, what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. 
Well, we'll take a picture yeah. of it. And we're not going to do it right now while all the people are listening. <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's pause while we take a picture. All right, everybody, quiet, quiet, quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Professional photographer at work here. Anything else? Yeah, that's that's basically what I got for Dark Knight. Um, do you guys have any additions? Oh, I mean, one thing I do want to say... Uh, before uh, we sound off, there's this one quote uh, from Brian K. Vaughn. I read it in an essay that he wrote for uh, this comic book that Mark Miller wrote called Wanted, which was made into a movie years ago. I don't think the movie was very good. I, actually, I think it was pretty horrible. <laughs> but uh, the comic by Mark Miller and J.G. Jones, uh, Wanted, is a, that's another superhero comic uh, from the point of view of supervillains who end up uh, basically forming a secret society. But anyway, I'd, I mean, I'd recommend that comic too, uh, but that's not the point of all this. I just wanted to share this quote that always stuck with me uh, that Brian K. Vaughn wrote in his intro, because he was talking about uh, superhero comics as a, as a genre, right? And I know we just spent a whole bunch of time talking about the genre. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it can be something that's, not really, it's not a genre that's necessarily super well respected in terms of, uh, you know, how <laughs> you guys are making all that noise trying to open a bag of chips up. <laughs> Sorry. That is funny. Sorry. I can't keep a straight face. Dude. <laughs> We're hungry, dude. We're hungry. What can I say? It's a long, it's a long podcast. <laughs> go, go. Sorry. I don't, I don't even remember what I was what was the quote? You, so the, the the quote was, at their worst, superhero stories are just dopey male power fantasies, but at their best, these myths don't just entertain; they work as powerful allegories that help us understand who we are. And I think pretty much all the comics that we talked about today touched on that aspect in some way, because. Yeah, these comics all work as pure entertainment. There's a lot of action and adventure and swashbuckling to be had. But there's deeper themes as well. There's the as just ideas of of uh of concepts that, that just go beyond uh fisticuffs, the concepts that go beyond the aspect of characters putting on costumes and flying around and doing super cool things. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff um, where these characters really do have something to say about yeah. the human condition. You know, if you're willing to take the time to, to consider and, and ponder things like that, if you like to think about the stuff that you read, the stories that you read, yeah. uh, the, the stories that you consume, you can't really go, you can't go wrong with any of these Ultimate Spider-Man, Invincible... Life and Times of Savior 28 and The Dark Knight Returns, like, check them out. Yeah, I think they're great comics, and they make for great introductions to comics, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Drew. Um, you know, there there is an aspect that can definitely be, it's it's fun, it's entertainment, it can be escapism. It can be a dopey male power fantasy. It can, it, it can be that, <laughs> but um, there's, there's also another part of us, I think, that... Um, has a more transcendent kind of mindset. And I think yeah. 
the best types of stories um, somehow, some way, that sort of that sort of thing is is worked into it, and it elevates the story. Yeah. It it sort of speaks to that part of us that that reaches for something higher than where we than where mm-hmm. we are. Um, so yeah, I think I think all these recommendations um, do that. They definitely hit that point. Yeah. But even more than that, I would recommend that uh, anyone listening, if you're if you're thinking about getting into comics, maybe those are some of the things you should look for for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, what inspires you? What yeah. makes you um, reach for a better spot than, than what you're in? Or makes you want to better the people around you? If it's good storytelling, then, then chances are you're probably going to be better for, for reading it, and hopefully you'll want to make other people better too. Amen and amen. And if you guys uh, have any recommendations of your own, feel free to hit us up. Let us know. I'd, I'd love to be checking out whatever it is that you're into, unless it's like a Jeff Loeb comic or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, before we sign up, oh, did we read them? Okay, just before we sign off, I just want to give a shout out to our friends at BPCo.com. Um, holiday seasons are coming up, so, you know, I just went to New York Comic Con with them. I brought back a lot of goodies for my friends here. So go ahead and check out B-E-E-F-Y-C-O.com and uh, check out what they got. And, you know, Wait, did you just say .com? Dot .com. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about that. I was like... <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, go go there, and uh, you know, if uh, you got anything for the holidays, uh, check out their wares. Yeah, tell them between the gutters sent you. Yep. <laughs> Alright, I guess uh, now that we're all done talking, Shayna's can stop reading the Spider-Man comics and return to the real world. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's going to stop. <laughs> <laughs>